Cruzada, and welcome to the TxDOT Roadside Chat Podcast. I'm the Outreach Manager for the Environmental Program at the Texas Department of Transportation. My co-host today is Lauren Boussier with the Texas Archaeological Research Lab at the University of Texas in Austin. It's one of the state's largest archaeology curation facilities where much of the state's artifact collections are housed. It's been called a museum that's not really a museum, right Lauren? Yeah, hi Laura, thank you for having me on today. Um, Tarl is a an archaeological repository, which means that we house artifact collections. Um, whenever, whenever an archaeological project gets done, those artifacts have to go somewhere and they come to us. There are lots of other repositories in Texas, but we are the oldest and the largest, and we have collections from thousands of sites all over Texas and in other states and other countries. And we have over 50 million artifacts. That is so cool. What is the uh, what is your favorite all-time collection at Tarl? My favorite collection is the one that I'm working on right now, which is a private collection from a donor in the early 20th century named A.E. Anderson. And he collected artifacts from South Texas, from the Rio Grande Valley, from a bunch of different sites that he documented. Um, he was... In most cases, he was the first person to visit those sites and document them at all. And they're pretty much the biggest collection of data regarding these prehistoric cultures that lived in that area. It's not unusual for TxDOT to find archaeology sites along the road when we're building roads. So today's guest is Kevin Henselka, a staff archaeologist at TxDOT. He'll be speaking about prehistoric farming. He just published a chapter in a new book on ancient agriculture in the Southwest. Kevin, first tell us in one sentence about what you do at TxDOT. Hi, Laura. Hi, Lauren. Hi. <laughs> uh, yes, I'm one of about 10 archaeologists at TxDOT, uh, and we examine uh, project right-of-ways before construction takes place to make sure that uh, the project will not impact uh, significant archaeological sites. Can you tell us a little bit about your background in archaeology and how you got to where you are here at TxDOT? Like, most archaeologists that I know, at least, uh, I first got into archaeology as a child, as an interested child, uh, tromping around the wilderness in South Texas, uh, occasionally finding the uh, random arrow point here and there. Um, when I was about 12 years old, uh, near our my childhood home in Corpus Christi, I discovered uh, the, a few bones from a mammoth, and that really got me hooked. Uh, fast forward to college years, after bouncing around between various majors, I realized I could take archaeology classes and major in anthropology. Um, I got my degree from Southwest Texas State University, which is now Texas State University. Um, went on to my master's at the University of Texas in San Antonio and my PhD at Washington University in St. Louis. It was at, uh, while at UTSA uh, that I first got into the Southwest and early agriculture. So your book is actually titled The Archaic Southwest, Foragers in an Arid Land. Um, and how long ago are we talking about in this book? Well, yes, uh, the, the book itself is uh, edited by Bradley J. Vieira. I, I am one of uh, about 12 other authors in it. Um, uh, the Archaic period basically goes from about 8,500 years ago to about 1,800 years ago. And what, is, what do you mean by Southwest? I think that means different things to different people. Yes, uh, the, uh, the Southwest is basically the southwestern United States as well as portions of northern Mexico. It in includes Arizona and New Mexico as well as parts of Colorado, Utah, California, and Nevada, and far west Texas, 
as well as uh, uh, the northern parts of Sonora and Chihuahua. Uh, Mexican archaeologists, incidentally, uh, they refer to it as the Northwest rather than the Southwest. <laughs> um, so as an archaeologist, I find your work really interesting with early agriculture, it's an important topic that we study in archaeology. But I feel like a lot of folks out there um, who maybe have a passing interest in archaeology but haven't really studied it, tend to think of archaeology as the artifacts that we find, the arrowheads, the ceramic pots, um, maybe some burials, and maybe then the sites themselves, uh, structures that people lived in and that kind of thing. The work that you're doing is typically not necessarily along those lines of evidence. Um, what is it that's really interesting about studying agriculture, and how do you study it? Okay, yes, uh, a lot of people when they hear that I look at little bits of charcoal under the microscope and identifying plants based on those, uh, their eyes glaze over, they lose interest very, fairly quickly. Uh, basically, this is just one line of evidence that we look at to uh, reconstruct past life ways. But um, looking at agriculture and food in general uh, is important because uh, these things form the basis of, on, on which all other kinds of human behavior take place. Um, uh, how you get your food determines so many other aspects of your life, or at least it influences it. Um, you can't have high-level civilizations without food production, for example. But um, even among hunter, hunters and gatherers, the kinds of food you eat and their distribution on the landscape and their variation from in the seasons determines your mobility. It de determines how large of a, uh, uh, a group you can live in and, so, and even uh, different types of social organizations, sexual division of labor and so on and so forth. So... Um, by studying subsistence, uh, we, we can learn a lot more about other aspects of past cultures. Wait, so we are talking about hunters and gatherers here. That sort of challenges what I think about when I think about archaeology. I never thought about farming. How was it different, and what are we really talking about? Well, in many places uh, throughout prehistory, there were only, hun were only hunters and gatherers. Like Texas is a good example. There are only a few places where... Uh, food production or agriculture actually took hold. Um, I tend to think of the two as different ends of a continuum, basically, um, where the archaic period that we're talking about in the book, early on, it was all hunters and gatherers. But um, towards the end of the archaic period, people started adopting agriculture. And um, when I say agriculture, there, there are a few plants that were domesticated down in Mexico that spread into the area over the last 4,000 years or so. And uh, people used them to varying degrees. They probably didn't even consider them too different than what they were already using. Uh, so they wouldn't consider themselves farmers versus hunter-gatherers, so to speak. Uh, they were just different levels in, of investment in different kinds of foods. So in, in many areas, you get this long, drawn-out period where you're basically hunter, hunting and gathering, but you're also planting crops here and there. Eventually, people did settle down into settled villages where they had crops planted nearby, but even then they still can, depended on wild resources to some degree, at least during the Archaic period. And at the end of the Archaic period, you, you have these larger scale societies like the Hohokam or what used to be known as the Anasazi, these big, big farming groups that people know today. 
That's really interesting, especially considering that I think a lot of people think of the U.S. Southwest as a very arid and dry region and one that might not necessarily be amenable to farming, um, especially compared to someplace like in central Texas, here where we are in the Austin area, there's more rainfall, potentially better soils. It seems like the kind of place where people would develop agriculture. Um, so why, what are your hypotheses regarding whether people or why people would develop agriculture in that type of environment? Well, in, in some parts of the Southwest, I mean, we could go on and on for days about this subject alone. Uh, uh, the question of why people adopt agriculture is a big, uh, big question. Uh, and in the Southwest in particular, one of the most challenging parts of this chapter is so much has been written uh, over decades and decades. It's, it's a huge subject. But um, the Southwest has certain, or at least the Southern Southwest, the basin and range, as we call it, call it these mountain ranges between uh, larger valleys, uh, has several environmental characteristics that are, that are more amenable to agriculture. Uh, one, in, for example, in the Tucson Basin, where you have these large rivers that can be irrigated, or you can dig irrigation canals off of them, uh, differences in elevation, for example, around the mountains, you can, because of the differences in elevation, you can have a wide range of resources of different kinds within a very short area. So you can you can actually stay in one place longer and just move up and down the mountains gathering. So that that's more amenable to uh, sedentism, as we call it, staying in one place longer, which of course is more amenable to farming. You can't farm very well if you're moving around too much. Uh, in parts of Texas, in the southwest Texas and in southern Texas, uh, these kinds of things might have hindered that kind of act, those kinds of activities. Another important thing is in the desert, the quote-unquote desert southwest, you have a, a, a monsoonal rainfall pattern where rain falls during the summertime just when you need it. You know, if, if you're able to catch the rain, of course, it's pretty patchy, but they had all kinds of water control strategies that they could follow as well. So these are some of the hypotheses. There may have been ethnic differences where you just, local groups valued mobility and, and hunting and gathering and just didn't want to be like those agriculturalists to the south. Um, bringing up Texas, for example, uh, uh, there were also a lot of other um, wild local species that could be uh, intensified upon, as, as we, we call it. So you did not have to uh, adopt, introduce domesticates to deal with increasing population, for example. You could, uh, you could um, depend on locally available things. And uh, so it could have been any one or a combination of all of these different things that led to different areas adopting agriculture or not. What were they farming? In the Southwest, the, uh, the early agriculture in the Southwest was founded on uh, crops that were introduced from Mesoamerica and domesticated down there. Uh, these are the well-known ones, uh, maize or, or corn, maize, beans, and squash. Uh, they did probably cultivate some locally available things, um, uh, such as beeweed and portulaca and um, tansy mustard. 
among other things. Eventually, after the archaic, uh, the Hohokam, for example, uh, domesticated several species of agave. Um, but for the most part, the foundation of early uh, southwestern agriculture were, were the uh, maize, beans, and squash triad. And these things complement each other in the field when they're grown together. Uh, for example, maize depletes the soil of certain kinds of nutrients while beans puts those nutrients back in there. So it was a highly successful system. And it was obviously intentional. It was, yes, it was obviously intentional. I mean, uh, these uh, even the hunters and gatherers were well plugged into their environments and very observant. They knew what worked and what didn't in a lot of cases. I'm not saying they were perfect, but they, uh, they were so well adapted. So even if they didn't know what nitrogen was and that the beans put the nitrogen back in the soil, they would recognize that their corn grew better the next year if there had been beans there as well. Exactly. Stuff like that. Yes. It, in my mind, it takes a long time for corn to grow. If they were mobile societies... How did they manage to grow corn, for instance? Uh, that is an important question. In some kinds of environments, it might have done well, done better in the absence of human beings. Uh, I tend to think that when it comes to corn, people had to remain in one place for a long time. Um, just because when corn comes out of the ground, it's really tender and very attractive to things like rabbits, which the archaic... Uh, even based on the animal bones we find on archaic sites, rabbits were abundant. <laughs> um, other kinds of plants, however, like uh, squashes and gourds that were grown by these people are really res resilient. Uh, they, they survive very well by themselves, even the domesticated ones. You can plant uh, seeds of squashes and gourds and walk away for months and come back and find, uh, find fruit on those plants. I wouldn't recommend it if you were depending on them <laughs> because and I think these, these uh, mobile archaic groups were very opportunistic and included things where they could, and did, but they didn't put all their eggs in one basket. They, they depended on a lot of different things so that when one thing failed, they had something to fall back on, at least early on. But there, there are examples of larger settlements in the archaic period that were probably more dependent on, on these things. But they were also probably more sedentary. You had mentioned there was um, at least an Apache tribe, I think, that you'd mentioned that had would plant corn and then leave and come back. Yes, this uh, this uh, there are Apache groups that have been used as analogies for what people might have been doing in the Archaic period, um, and they do. There, there is evidence that they planted uh, and just walked away and came back. But again, they were they uh, the the Apache were hunters and gatherers, and did not rely on these plants uh, just in case things were not there when they came back. Can you talk a little bit about the different theories for how these plants got into the Southwest to begin with? I thought that was a very interesting part um, of your article. Basically, did one group give a plant to their neighbors who gave a plant to their neighbors? Or was it something else going on? Yes, that's that's been a debate that's been going on for decades. Uh, you know, some some folks think large scale ma migration out of Mesoamerica into the Southwest. Others uh, suggest diffusion, which is basically one group handing it off to the next group, handing it off to the next group. Um, there have been arguments for both. Uh, some people have looked at linguistic evidence suggesting that there were larger migrations into the Southwest. Um, 
I tend to follow the other view where people were handing things from group to group. There may be, have been minor migration taking place or um, the plants filtering into an area and people establishing farming villages and then, then they migrate into other parts of the Southwest. Yeah. But I think that if there were larger scale migrations of people from the South into the Southwest, there would be more evidence besides the plants themselves. There would be more artifacts that are Mesoamerican in nature, yeah, sure. uh, rather than there's a lot of continuity between the pre-agricultural archaic people and the, the agricultural ag archaic people. The diffusion model might do a better job of explaining the major time gaps, too, between the different plants, because in some cases you see hundreds or even thousands of years between the time that corn arrives and the time that beans arrive in the Southwest, for yes. example. Beans are notoriously late uh, in many areas, but uh, we, we have to use caution there because that, that also might be related to preservation, for example. Um, in dry rock shelters, a, a, a dried piece of corn or bean can sit there for thousands of years and be well preserved, but on open sites, uh, plant remains deteriorate, deteriorate rapidly. Uh, we find them in the form of charcoal once they're burned, but in order to be burned, for a lot of plants that requires an accident, like uh, accidentally dropping a bean into the ashes and it becomes carbonized. In the case of maize, the cob itself is a good fuel, so you're burning the cobs intentionally, so it might be overrepresented. Uh, for beans, um, the main way of preparing them is by boiling, and that minimizes the chance that they're going to be preserved. Sure. So beans could have arrived a lot earlier. We're just not aware of it yet. Um, but you're absolutely right. Uh, in the case of maize, it looks like there was a really rapid spread once it got to the southwest. Uh, south of the border, there has been less work done on the Archaic period, so there isn't there the the evidence is more patchy as opposed to the southwest. But based on the dates that we have now, uh, maize appears really early in multiple parts of the Southwest. So it suggests a really rapid spread. Another really interesting part of that is uh, what you mentioned regarding a hypothesis that maize wasn't actually intentionally domesticated originally for its kernels. The part that we think of as the important part of corn that we eat that we rely on as a society today might not have been the initial reason for uh, growing corn. Yes, um, first of all, corn is descended from a wild grass called teosinte. Um, the kernels, quote unquote, on the teosinte plant are really encased in this really hard shell. They're, there's not a lot of nutritional content to it. Um, one would wonder why to select for that to begin with. Um, then, once it is domesticated, the earliest cobs that we have from southern Mexico are only like two or three centimeters in length. They have very few kernels. Um, I've heard it actually stated that there's probably more nutritional content in a uh, single kernel of modern Nebraska corn than there was in the entire cob of the earliest corn in, in Mexico. And then even when you get to the archaic period in the southwest, uh, the cobs are larger, but usually, uh, mostly about four inches long. 
they had more rows, but still it, it's not what you would think of as a really uh, reliable or, or abundant food resource. Uh, Yet it takes a lot to grow. Yes. So why? Well, there has been a recurring uh, uh, hypothesis that's gaining momentum now among a lot of people, including myself, that uh, the plant was valued for some other reason. Uh, and in this case, the idea is that the, it's the high sugar content of the stalks. Um, when you chew on, chew on the, the stalk, uh, it produces a really sweet taste. And, uh, and uh, incidentally, that juice can also be fermented into alcoholic beverages. Um, these suggest that people were using the, or observing the plant for other reasons and maybe even planting it. Um, you, you can even go so far as to say the possibility for uh, ritual activity and feasting and things like that with involving alcoholic beverages. We do have ethnographic historic cases that maize, maize is made into a beer, and uh, there's no reason to suspect why that it wasn't done so in the past as well. Uh, but through observation and planting, one would uh, possibly recognize the mutations that s start people on the uh, road to uh, domestication of the cob itself. Everybody loves a good party. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so are we sort of talking about GMO corn, essentially? Uh, in, in, a, in a sense, yes. I mean, when you talk about GMO today, you're talking about it's done in a lab. It's, you know, you're injecting gen genes and a bunch of things that I'm really not familiar with. But, uh, but um, basically, the process of domestication in, it occurs in various ways, but part of it is uh, intentionally selecting the traits that you like, like larger seeds or, in the case of maize, the uh, the mutation that would cause seeds to stay on the cob longer, so that you can just pick pluck the cob and and you know without losing all the seeds, the uh, by planting the seeds of the plants that have traits that you desire, you're manipulating the gene pool, which over generations causes them to go in a certain direction that you want. Uh, larger cobs, for example, and, and for various plants, it takes place uh, in, in different ways. But uh, yes, so yeah, we're talking about uh, manipulating the gene pool of plants until until they are more like what you want. And that brings up a point um, that basically, what the type of corn or plants that we're talking about eight thousand years ago really don't exist today, right? Uh, many of them do, as a matter of fact. However. Um, there are a number of crops, uh, for example, in the eastern United States, uh, which is a different different uh, trajectory altogether. Uh, folks in the east eventually did adopt the same plants that were introduced into the southwest from Mexico, but those plants were added to a local a, a group of local plants that were domesticated, um, including uh, marsh elder, which is called the Iva annua is called marsh elder. Uh, erect knotweed, uh, chenopodium, a, a species of chenopodium. Uh, sunflower was there, as well as squash. Uh, incidentally, the squash that was domesticated in the east is the same species as the one domesticated in Mexico, but they were domesticated independently. Uh, uh, the same plant uh, gave rise to domesticated plants in completely different areas. But um, many of these, like uh, erect knotweed, Iva annua, uh, in the the domesticated chenopodium um, in the east, 
the only evidence we have for them is archaeological. The, those domesticates have gone extinct. Um, and, but we do have remains of these plants in archaeological sites that show those signs of domestication. Um, eventually around, in, at least in eastern Texas, around the 7th century AD, uh, you start seeing maize, which became the foundation for the Caddo diet. But, they, they, but that was not until much later. Can you tell us a little bit about the ways that um, the people who were growing the plants were then processing and preparing the plants? Because a lot of them were not exactly um, super easy just to pull right out of the ground and then eat. Right. Yes, well, in the case of maize, uh, there are many ways to prepare it, but you can you can eat it green off the plant, just chew it up raw. Um, later on, you, you would shell it, you would remove the kernels from the cob and then grind them possibly into a, a, a flour that can be made into various other things. You can steam it, uh, you can prepare it in earth ovens, uh, a kind of a roasting activity. In, in West Texas, uh, in parts of central Texas, uh, you find these large earth ovens just with abundant burned rock where you would heat up the rocks and use them to cook uh, various foods. Uh, agave and sotol are, are among the most prevalent that we find. Uh, but the thing about agave and sotol is they're not, they're not re readily edible. You have to invest a lot of energy to turn them into food. And a part of this is putting them in an earth oven and baking them for 48 hours or so. Wow. And you do find, we do find these, these oven facilities that have charred leaves from these kinds of plants. Um, beans, on the other hand, one of the things that may have contributed to its late arrival in many places is just uh, the main way you prepare it is by boiling it. Uh, and until you get ceramic vessels, that's, that's easier said than done. So uh, they may have been they were definitely present during archaic times, but they might not have become a very important food item until the arrival of that technology. One of the interesting things that I noticed reading your article was that you talk about a division of labor within these southwestern societies that was based on gender. So essentially the men are doing one thing and the women are doing other things. Um, what were they doing, and how is it that archaeologists know these things? It's fascinating. Well, um, first of all, among all of the more recent groups that we know of, uh, there is a strong tendency for anything related to plant gathering to be in uh, the feminine domain. Uh, basically, women were doing the gathering and men were doing the hunting, in general. Um, that Therefore, we can basically give the credit for agriculture in in the Southwest to, to women, for one thing, most likely. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> um, also, uh, by looking at the uh, uh, skeletons of uh, um, people from this time period, uh, highly mobile people tend to have really robust leg bones, uh, really thick leg bones, but just to deal with the uh, high the high levels of mobility, especially if you're doing a lot of up and down climbing of mountains and things like that. So highly mobile people tend to have those, those thicker leg bones, femora, femora for example. Uh, by looking at various populations of skeletons from some of these sites, some of these early agricultural settlements actually have cemeteries um, associated with them. But uh, it's been shown by various studies that the... Uh, 
males in these cemeteries have those thick leg bones, while the females have bones that are more closely uh, resembling settled agricultural villages. So this is suggesting that during the transition to agriculture, the male portion of the population were continuing their hunting and gathering activities and going farther out and bringing things back, for example, meat, while uh, females were staying closer to the settlement, being less mobile, probably doing things more closely related to agricultural production, such as planting and, and tending fields uh, and grinding corn and things like that with, once it's harvested. That's so interesting to me, especially because it's not just somebody's idea based on stereotypes of what men and women might have been doing, but there's physical scientific evidence to show that. Uh, maybe we should talk about some of the, the physical archaeological evidence for agriculture and what it is that you find that demonstrates what kind of agricultural or agriculture they might have been doing um, what types of artifacts or sites or um, other evidence do you come across? Well, regarding artifacts, that can be kind of problematic because a lot of the artifacts that were used to process or harvest uh, corn and of these other plants are also useful for the wild plants that people were gathering at the time. Um, the archaic period is known for uh, abundant groundstone, where people are grinding grinding seeds into flour or other products for consumption, but um, one line of evidence that we can look at on those artifacts is uh, starch grains and, and similar tiny, tiny pieces that can be identified as maize that, get, that fall into the crevices and get stuck there. So that's one line of evidence. Um, the most reliable line of evidence, of course, is actually finding parts of the, the plant itself, uh, the charred maize cobs, for example, that we look for. Um, uh, and we can identify these things based on little bits of charcoal or in, in, in a lot of cases full corn cobs or corn cob fragments are preserved. There are other lines of evidence. Uh, we can look at agricultural strategies. Um, there are various ways in the southwest that people manipulated the environment to, to uh, manip manipulate moisture, for example. They can, uh, they can build little rock alignments that divert runoff, for example, or the terracing is another example. Um, some of these uh, early agricultural settlements that you find out that uh, have been discovered by highway construction outside of Tucson, for example, uh, have uh, evidence for uh, irrigation canals, which in this case they're, they're more like ditches, but they're, they're, people are digging canals to divert water. Uh, and incidentally, in this case, in one of the sites outside of Tucson in the last year, year or two, uh, you've actually discovered 2,000-year-old human and dog footprints in, in the mud, which is very exciting. Wow, that's so cool. <laughs> that is really cool. Yes, but uh, uh, there are various lines of evidence, the, uh, the irrigation features, uh, bits, of, bits of the plants themselves, pollen and uh, phytoliths. Phytoliths are actually little bits of uh, um, silica that are formed in grass stems. Uh, there are specialists who look at things like that to identify uh, these kinds of plants. So when I think about farming, obviously I think about tractors and or horses pulling plows. But what was it actually, how did they do it? What was it like? What would it look like? Well, to the average person today, uh, 
they probably, if they were to travel back in time to this time period, especially early on, you probably wouldn't be able to recognize these things as fields because what we're used to is these big fields full of just one plant. Um, as I said already, uh, the three Mesoamerican cultigens that, that form the basis of this were often all grown in the same field together. Um, but in addition to that, they probably would allow other weedy things that took over disturbed habitats to ex coexist with these plants just because they were useful too. I mean, you might, you might find Portulaca or Amaranth or Kinopodium or some other wild useful plant in the same fields. So it was more like a, a, a human constructed niche versus a, a, a field uh, among some of these, uh, most of these uh, communities probably. And as far as how they did it, uh, it was pretty low tech. Obviously, they uh, they had what they what we refer to as digging sticks, which is basically a sharpened stick with a fire hardened point that you would just poke a hole in the ground and drop the seeds in. Um, and as I already mentioned, uh, there were a, a variety of water control features or, or strategies that you could you could do. Um, rain fed, just relying on rainfall alone was probably not done very often just because of the uh, patchy and unpredictable nature of, of rainfall in the southwest. But you could plant, do high water table farming, which is where you plant your crops in near marshes or areas that you know to have a high water table. Uh, you could do irrigation canals, um, terracing, Dry land farming which is just planting your crops in areas that you know to have high moisture content, uh, just naturally occurring. Uh, the Hohokam, for example, in later time periods had these large areas that where they just built these small piles of rock. Um, and what that does is it allows moisture to fall through the rocks into the soil, uh, but the, the rocks themselves inhibited the evaporation. Kind of like mulch. Uh, yeah, it's, a, <laughs> it, it's so exactly smart. it. And they would grow they would grow these big fields of agave in particular on mm -hmm. these on these things. Again, that's after the archaic, but uh, and any one strategy uh, could be combined with others. So they were probably making use of all kinds of different different ways of doing this. And some of those strategies would be visible in the archaeological record, where others wouldn't be. Right. Um, a lot of the evidence, uh, well, evidence for terracing and things like that is pretty pretty clear, but a lot of the other evidence would be circumstantial, just based on the location of the site. I mean, if it's near a marsh, you can kind of assume, basically. Another example is out in West Texas in the El Paso area, where you find a Pueblo room block with no nearby water source. Uh, but they do have these little, uh, what are called uh, playas, which are just depressions that naturally gather water at certain times of the year. And you can just kind of deduce that they were, they were farming along the margins of these things. Nice. So this to me gets to what's really important about what you guys are doing with TxDOT and the um, archeology span that gets done because of your work on the highway system. In a lot of academic research projects, the scientists will go in with an idea of where they want to look for evidence and what they want to look for, and that might create a bias in terms of what they find. So how does your work with TxDOT um, 
open up archaeological investigation in new directions. Some of the sites in Tucson, I mean, as what's relevant to this chapter, even though very little of it takes place in or concerns Texas, a lot of the most important finds in recent decades on this subject uh, came directly from highway projects. Um, mostly because most of the work that takes place and most of the archaeology that takes place in the United States is related to this kind to, to cultural resource management rather than academic projects. Um, these large-scale villages outside of Tucson are directly related to widening of Interstate 10, for example. Um, and Lauren, you're actually you're absolutely correct that uh, there is a bias towards sites with better preservation, things, sites that people know about, sites where you would expect them. Uh, highway projects kind of force us to look in areas that we might not normally look. Uh, these no man's land places between the important, the quote unquote important sites, leading us to uh, more discoveries. Um, and again, because most of the work that takes place uh, is related to these fields, uh, to uh, cultural resource management. A lot of the dates that we are getting off of maize cobs that are pushing back the earliest dates of the earliest known arrival in the Southwest have come out of cultural resource management and highway projects. And that kind of reminds me about TxDOT's history. I mean, we're celebrating our 100-year anniversary this year, and one of the storylines we talk about is bringing communities together, the farm to market roads that brought crops to people. And that kind of, you know, it kind of rings true here as well. It's like our work is sort of tied um, to agriculture. Yes, yes I, I would absolutely agree with that. So today in 2017, why is it important that we study agriculture through the science of archaeology? I would think uh, in, in many ways this is one of the most relevant things to study uh, given our current situation. Uh, the success of archaic period early agriculturalists was uh, in a lot of ways dependent on diversity, diversifying your diet. Uh, as a matter of fact, agriculture in my opinion uh, was kind of a logical extension of hunting and gathering. And while we definitely can't go back to hunting and gathering as a society today, uh, our, our food base is dangerously narrow. Um, and when, when we look at those lost crops of East, the eastern U.S., for example, um, again, those, those are extinct now, um, but we do know they were domesticated. But by studying that domestication process, we can re-domesticate them. And uh, by studying how ancient people sustain themselves for thousands of years, we can, we can help ourselves deal with future food crises. If something were to happen, uh, climate change or uh, some disease were to develop that, that threatened any one of our mainstays right now, we would be in, in real trouble. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think that, that says a lot about how uh, this type of research can benefit society today. And especially as we deal with um, shifting climates or just the general unpredictability of climate, um, anything like that, anything we can do to mitigate those kind of risks, I think is a smart way to help ensure our, you know, continued prosperity as a society. 
Yeah, I guess there really is no such thing as the paleo diet, is there? <laughs> Not really, because even uh, for one thing, um, I don't know much about the paleo diet, but it's it's a false claim to say that um, paleo Indian or archaic people ate uh, a diet of meat, for one thing. Uh, uh, again, I'm not an osteologist, but uh, human beings, they evolved to have a mixed diet. They're, we're omnivores. Um, and plants are a huge part of that. And to go beyond that, uh, most of what you would eat under the quote-unquote paleo diet is domesticated. You know, it's not, uh, it's not what people would have been eating in, eating in the past. Not to mention, even the... Even the uh, Parts of certain foods that we we see as inedible um, were were beneficial in the in the archaic diet. Let's call it that. <laughs> uh, the the fibers that were inadvertently eaten along with the nutrition nutritious parts helped with digestion, for example, things like that. So it's there was a <clears throat> if you want to eat like archaic people, you know, granted you're going to be eating domesticated foods, but the 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 uh, approach I would take is just to eat a diverse diet. Lots, Careful, lots you're going to kick off a new dietary trend. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt it. <laughs> um, Kevin, tell us a little bit more about the book in general. Okay. The book is an edited volume. It's edited by Brad Vieira. There are 16 chapters total. Um, Brad Vieira wrote the introduction chapter, and it's followed by a, an overview of the evidence for the paleo environment of the Southwest. Um, those are the first two chapters, but it, those chapters are followed by 12 others that are written by regional experts on various parts of the Southwest. So it's going to cover uh, different areas and archaic developments. My chapter on early agriculture follows in chapter 15 and followed by a conclusion chapter overviewing the other chapters as well as uh, future directions for research of research in the Southwest. Awesome. Sounds like a really interesting and important book and I um, look forward to reading the rest of it. Okay, yes, and it will be available um, end of November, I believe. Nice. Who's the publisher? University of Utah Press and it is already listed on Amazon.com for Excellent. pre-order. Excellent. Congratulations, Kevin. Thank you. And thank you for having me on today, Laura. This has been fun. Well, we've learned a lot today, um, but obviously people can learn not only about your chapter in the book, but about Texas archaeology in general. Lauren, where can people go to learn more about archaeology in Texas? In terms of my lab, we have an excellent blog resource that anybody can access. Go to the University of Texas website. It's uh, utexas.edu, and you can find our lab from there. There's also a wonderful resource for teachers and students about Texas archaeology that's called Texas Beyond History, um, and that one's Texas dot, or texasbeyondhistory.net. And then you guys have some resources at text.net as well. Yeah, if you want to learn more about um, Kevin's research, uh, he's also doing some research on prehistoric rainfall, um, go to www.text.gov and keyword search archaeology. Kevin, what about you? Are there any other places people can learn or get involved with archaeology in Texas? Yes, depending on the level of involvement you want to undertake, uh, there are several there are several organizations you can join. Uh, the Texas Archaeological Society is uh, has an annual meeting as well as an annual bulletin where they publish uh, research papers. 
they do a field school too, right? Yes, they do a field school once a year uh, at, at various places where you can actually participate in excavations, and they have other various other events like uh, uh, academies or specialized classes throughout the year. There is also a Southern Texas Archaeological Association, as, and many counties actually have their own archaeological organizations as well. And we'll be kicking off soon with the Texas Public Archaeology Network, which is a, a consortium, <laughs> a brain trust, are we though, of uh, archaeologists from around the state who are interested in doing more public outreach and will be um, putting together resources, including a list of people like potentially Kevin and myself who can come and give talks and uh, that kind of stuff for anybody who wants to uh, learn about archaeology. Um, well, thank you both. Thank you, Kevin, for sharing your expertise with us today. On behalf of my co-host, Lauren and TechStot, thank you for listening and tuning in. If you enjoyed TechStot Roadside Chat and want to show your support, review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also learn more about TechStot Beyond the Road at www.techstot.gov keyword archaeology. So long for now. Thank you.